All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining our From the Field today. Uh, we are privileged to have Chris Munt here with us today. Chris is a serial pathologist and also a professor at Oregon State University. And I hear, Chris, that you are also on the path to retire at the end of this year. Is that right? Uh, retire on paper. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I, as I tell people, I'm trying to cut back to just 40 hours a week. So, oh, yeah. okay. No. But no, I, I'll be officially retired and, and we've actually got permission to replace my position just a couple of a week ago. So that's okay. great. Yeah. But I've got a couple of projects, including this microbiome one that I, I plan to be working on for another five years. So, okay. Well, let, let's let's jump into that, Chris. I just want to remind everybody watching in or listening today, uh, questions are welcome throughout the conversation. If if you just unmute your screen or use the icon, the raised hand icon to ask your question, or we'll be monitoring the chat as well. Uh, if you want to type your question in the chat, we can get that to, Jen, uh, to Chris, excuse me, throughout this episode. Uh, so, Chris, if you would just start out with a just a brief introduction uh, of what you do uh, as a researcher and kind of how you came up to learn about the microbiome research and kind of a little background on that, if you can, for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm I'm a, a serial pathologist at, at Oregon State University, and my uh, initial training is on quantitative epidemiology, but my entire career, I've always worked from undergraduate, graduate school to now, I've always worked very, very closely with, with plant breeders. And, you know, kind of my view is the best way to control disease is to have a resistant variety. So that's been a very, very strong association. Uh, do a lot of work on trying to understand the the population genetics of plant pathogens, how they react to varieties or to fungicides when we apply them and, and things like that. And I kind of um, came, came onto this microbiome project kind of by accident. Um, how, how long do you want me to speak uh, on that? I've got... That was kind of going to be a follow-up question. Uh, I know you had learned about the microbiome research that was taking place in the UK, and that kind of yeah. got you on the ground running for for what you're doing today. Yeah, I'll just kind of jump in, and if I'm if I'm going too long, you can you can ask me to speed up. Sure. Um, you know, it's hard to pick up the newspaper anymore without seeing something about microbiomes, and you know, we all know they're important to our guts. Uh, certainly, wheat growers know that microorganisms are, are crucial to the to the health of our soils, and there's just been this explosion of research in recent years, and and it's really great to have that research. But at the same time, I've been kind of frustrated because no matter what you do, you you can spit on the ground and you're going to change the microbiome, and so if you have 40 species, you spit on the ground and 40 species go up and 40 go down. How do you interpret that and, and how do you actually use those changes to, to try to control disease or come up with some other kind of uh, favorable trait? And so kind of my interests that I stumbled onto, um, I saw the potential for really to put this into action. And so it really started about, I was thinking 15 years ago, it could be more now. Um, we had a pretty bad outbreak of take all in, in the Pacific Northwest. 
And certainly at that at that time, we had a fair amount of wheat on wheat in the Willamette Valley. Wheat prices were up. Um, and certainly there's a lot of wheat on wheat in irrigated systems. And we just had the right environmental conditions. And there were growers who, who took some, some pretty bad losses. And I was in meetings with some pretty upset growers, you know, wanting to know what to do. And, and unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of good answers for them. And, and I, I was really frustrated by that. And they made it clear that they really wanted some genetic solutions. And the problem was that this is, tickle is a really important disease around the world. And breeders and pathologists have been trying to find resistance for a hundred years, and they really couldn't find it, which is really bizarre, because um, almost any disease, if you look hard enough, you're gonna you're gonna find something. And so I was actually trying to look up somebody's email address at the Rotham Cedric Sperm Station in the UK, and there was this little sidebar on some research that they were just starting there, and they found that the wheat variety that you grow in year one can have a really big impact on how much disease you get in year two. And just immediately that told me that that had to be a microbiome effect. So you're probably increasing those organisms in the first year, and then it has an impact on how much take all you get in the next year, which is when we usually start to see the, the take all come in. And, um, and it kind of makes sense because no one was really doing anything wrong in the past. They were doing a logical thing. You take and you plant your germplasm out in a field that has a history of take-all, or you produce the pathogen in the lab and then artificially inoculate it. And that's the way we deal with almost all of our pathogens. Um, but what people didn't realize is that with take-all, it took that first year to build up these microbes to kind of get... Uh, the impact in the, sec in the second year. And so um, I got thinking about that, and then I got really excited when I found out from one of the figures on their website that the variety Einstein is a variety that, that looks like it might have some of that take-all suppressiveness. And the reason I was excited about that is Einstein is one of the two parents of the wheat variety bobtail, which uh, Jim Peterson made the crosses and got that pretty far along. And then Bob Zemetri eventually uh, did the release after he came on. So what I did was I, I did a, a really simple experiment. Um, I really wasn't supposed to do it that year, but I was too interested to not pass up the opportunity. And there was a field that had had, um, because we had a switchover of farm managers on one of our farms, they let the volunteers get away from them and there had been a lot of take all of that field. And so I went to the edge of that field and I just put a couple of 40 foot plots of bobtail and then a couple of 40 foot plots of, of Stevens, which is, you know, of course our check and a lot of our, a lot of our trials. And then um, we just harvested that off. And then in year two, I did everything that I tell farmers not to do. Um, I planted early, you know, I let the volunteers get away from us and things like that. And I probably did too good of a job in getting take all going in the field. But still, it was pretty striking that, you know, basically the second year we went through and then planted Rosalind over, over that entire part of the field. So kind of a neutral variety, if you will. And the yield of Rosalind where we had bobtail the year before was twice that 
of where we had Stevens the year before. So it's pretty striking. You can just kind of see it, you know, from, from the pickup truck. So uh, subsequently, we started working with seven varieties, which were basically the seven, well, six varieties that had the highest yield in Willamette Valley at that time, and then added Stevens as his check. And basically, bobtail was always the best and consistently reduced take all by about 50% or more. Stevens and LCS Art Deco um, always looked really bad. And then there was a group of varieties that were kind of in the middle. Um, you know, both some of our varieties and also um, Lima grain varieties as well. And we also found that um, when we did root washes of bobtail from these experiments, that um, we started looking at these Pseudomonas bacterial species that are known to produce this chemical compound that not only has antibiotic activity, but also induces genetic resistance in the plant. And we found out that the populations of, of that bacterium were five to six fold greater in fields where we'd had bobtail as, as compared to other varieties. And so we were hoping that that's gonna give us one way of trying to get a handle on that and maybe a little bit uh, better way of selecting for it. Um, it's also important that, you know, take all is an important disease for, for some people, but we have, you know, a lot of other diseases as well. And one of the things that's really cool about these microbes that are, that are doing this is that they tend to have very, very broad spectrum. And we know that they can impact not, not only fungi, but bacterial pathogens, nematodes, and also give some protection against drought stress in some cases. So abiotic stresses as well. And interestingly, bobtail has the broadest spectrum of resistance to wheat diseases of any variety that's ever been produced from Oregon. And so we're starting to wonder if perhaps some of this broad spectrum of resistance might be at least partly due um, to its microbiome. I'm sure it's not 100% due, but it could be um, an important trait. And you know, at this point, you know, some growers have told me that they've already uh, successfully used bobtail to, to suppress uh, take all in their fields. And one grower who told me they've had good luck with uh, Rosalind as well. And Rosalind is kind of our, our number two variety after, after bobtail. And we also have some evidence at this point that um, interestingly, bobtail probably got some of this trait from Einstein and believe it or not, also some of, some of it from tubs. And, and, and we've seen this on several occasions now, you know, tubs is not a particularly resistant variety against anything, but when you cross it with other things, I, I think there's a suppressor in tubs. And then when you cross, cross it with other things, you lose the effect of that suppressor. So we have examples where we do crosses with tubs and we actually get some, some decent resistance out of the cross. So um, these growth promoting microbes, I, I, you know, people were doing research on this 30 or 40 years ago. And, you know, there's good evidence to show that, that they can do things like reduce a broad spectrum of pathogens, help against drought stress and other kinds of stresses. Um, it hasn't actually taken off. You know, a lot of people have wanted to take these microbes and spray them on the soil or treat the seed or something like that. 
And there's a lot of enthusiasm for it, but not very many good results commercially. And to some extent, it's because you need to get a company to kind of take up the product. But to some extent, it's just because you're asking these micro microbes, we're going to inoculate you, and then we want you to take out all the organisms that are already there. And the organisms that are already there are very, very well adapted. And so what that tells us is that we really have to change the environment to make that environment favorable for those microbes. Now, if you look at situations like um, high value ornamentals or high value um, vegetables and things like this, or organic vegetables and things that have a high price, people can do things like put on 10 or 20 you know, tons per hectare of, of compost to try to change the environment. But I don't think any wheat grower is going to go out and put on 10 or 20, 20 tons of, uh, of compost per acre. But I'm hoping that what we can do is change that environment around the root by through changing the, the genetics of the plant. And I'm pretty sure that that's probably what's what's happening with the with the variety uh, bobtail. So, Chris, a question or what do you see as role of soil health in this or different soil types in this? Because obviously we see inconsistencies in in resistances, um, especially in these intermediate levels of resistance, depending on where you're at across the state, the different types of soil, yeah. the different rotations in that. How do you how do you play in soil health as an important part of this as well? Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's one thing that, that did concern me. Is this really going to work in other soils? Um, mm -hmm. You know, one thing I felt good about is that these growers who were telling me it was working for them. One is, um, you know, Jim knows these locations. One was down getting close to Eugene. The other was up in the north part of the valley. And then um, I'll get onto this in a little bit. But we've got a new project with some new funding starting on this now. And we're trying to do some work at two different locations here locally, um, the Botany Farm, which is, you know, kind of a river bottom soil, and then the Hislop Farm, which is a more clay soil. So they're close as the crow flies, but they're really different soils. And then also Christina Haggerty is working with this um, up at Pendleton on, on two different locations up there. So we're hoping that'll that'll give us give us the information. But but don't don't you think I mean just the total organic matter of the soil, the the, the general health overall is going to have a big say in how these microbes develop or or the resistances that come out of this. It 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 could it could very well be 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 the case. Yeah, and you know, like I say, we're trying to we're trying to get at that right now by yeah, getting these things out at different locations. Cool. So, um, so the way I was doing this at, at first, um, it required I have you know, you know, for ex for exper experimenters, fairly large plots, and it's really it was really about a two and a half to three year cycle to get one piece of data, and you know that's not going to work in a plant breeding program. So one of the things we're doing now is we're trying to work with a couple of mapping populations. To see if we can't come up with some DNA markers that we can we can follow this um, in, in a better way, and there's there's different ways we're measuring the phenotype to associate with the DNA markers, 
but we're using two different populations and and one is the the population that the jim started einstein times tubs and that's where bobtail was selected out of initially and then since you know you always worry about a trait perhaps being expressed differently in different genetic backgrounds and so uh, Bob Symmetra also, he developed a bobtail times Zerfa population. So we know that the trait has to be segregating in both of those populations, but they're gonna have different backgrounds. So, um, so we've got a lot of work going on in the greenhouse right now. It took us longer to work up the methodology than we were hoping for, but um, we've got it going. We've got two different graduate students working on it right, right at the moment. Um, and then, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting on this is that it, there's good evidence, not just in wheat, but in other crops, that if, if you go back to land races and you go back to wild progenitors, there's a lot more of these organisms are functioning than is the case in our, in our modern varieties. And so it could be a case that, you know, we, we kind of accidentally lost this trait. And if we put a little bit of effort back into it, um, we, we should be able to, to get it back. Um, we we want to take a, a pretty strong look at how wheat genotypes out of these mapping populations and varieties such as bobtail, et cetera, how they react against uh, different diseases. And so a new student who just started two weeks ago, that's one of the first things she's going to be looking at, asking questions about how many different diseases do, do these microbes affect, you know, when you, when you get them out of bobtail and other varieties. And, you know, given what's happened two out of the last three years, we're, we've decided to put a pretty substantial effort on drought stress as well. And to see if we can't get at least a little protection against drought stress out of this system. Uh, let's see. So initially, you know, I had some funding from the uh, the Oregon Wheat Commission, and then um, Kathy Wilson had a, a real strong interest in this, and she said, "Why don't you put in a proposal?" So we got um, some funding to kind of uh, jointly fund this for for a few years, and um, the Idaho Wheat Commission in particular really wanted us to take this information that we were developing and leverage that into a, into a bigger project with federal funding. And uh, just a couple months ago, uh, that actually came through. We got a uh, $2 million grant from the National Science Foundation. And that's gonna be a, a third on poplar, and I'll come back to that, a third on tomatoes and a third on wheat. And so, um, Posey Busby is a faculty member here, and she just got tenure a year or two ago, and she's already become one of the experts in the world of microbiomes, and she is just fabulous. And when she interviewed, she asked me, well, if I came here, do you think we could work together on wheat? So uh, so she's going to continue with her popular work, which what she, that's what she worked on in her um, graduate work and, and, um, and postdoc but we're also collaborating a lot on wheat. Then Jim Myers is our vegetable, vegetable breeder here, is a really good plant breeder. And as it turns out, he had just a fabulous set of data where he had already been looking with a colleague at Purdue on, on this kind of question with um, microorganisms inducing resistance in plants and things like that. 
and also looking at land races of tomatoes and uh, and wild species. So, so I think we got a um, we got a really good group. Um, you know, Bob Zemetra is going to continue to work with us here. I hope our newest breeder will will get involved as well, and uh, Christina Haggerty is going to be involved up, up at Pendleton. So, you know, obviously, I'm pretty excited about this. We want to make progress. At the same time, I think we need to be really careful to, to not um, over predict, you know, what we can do. You know, there's no way we're going to be able to come up with a variety that produces 150 bushels per acre on five inches of rain per year. But we're hoping that we might be able to get something in years where people are really getting clipped with, with drought that you know might be able to boost the yields a little bit and hopefully to kind of um, give us at least some level of protection against a broad spectrum of different diseases. Chris, with so, the state of the research now, have you been able to provide solutions to, to farmers here in the PNW? Well, j j just with, with the, you know, with, with the bobtail variety. Yeah. yeah. And so now I, I think there could be a lot more coming along because bobtail has been crossed with a lot of stuff in the Oregon program and well, certainly in, in uh, Lima grain as well. And, and I assume probably Washington. So so that, you know, those genes could be floating around there. And so by going out there and doing some testing, we might be able to find that. Yeah, Chris, congratulations on the NSF grant. I think that's great. And it's a, it's a wonderful example how the seed money from the commi commissions can play into something bigger, into some serious money on the national scale. Um, I think you've got a, a great team to go after this. I'm kind of curious, I mean, are you aware of work on microbiomes going on around the country? I mean, this is pretty unique, is it not? Um, it was unique a few years ago. It, it's it's exploding right now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's, you know, we had a little mini symposium last year on this and, you know, we were able to, you know, get some people from UC Davis and Michigan State and other places that were starting to do work on it. And, and, you know, Posey and I were talking the other day that we're really lucky that we got the grant this year because everybody is starting to see the potential impact of this now and starting to jump on it. So, you know, we kind of got in on the ground floor. It, it, it's interesting, your, your comments about, you know, the fact we likely lost some of this trait or similar traits out of our wheat progenitors. When you think about how we've selected and managed and grown our grown our wheats for hundreds of years now. Um, and I wonder now, would it, would it be worthwhile going back and screening some of those progenitors? I mean, it's not an easy task, but it may be, maybe it's time to go back and look at what we've lost along the way in terms of promoting soil health or some of these microbes along the way. Yeah, 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 definitely. And, you know, and in the original grant, we actually had that as an additional objective. Oh, wow. And, and it was just getting to the point where we couldn't do everything that, that we were trying to promise. So oh, come on, you're only retiring half time. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but that doesn't mean we're not going to do it. So, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and Jim Myers has already you know got things like that going. But I would I'd really like to get some stuff out of the uh, the germplasm collections and and see what we can't do. And in fact, um, one of Jim Myers' 
master's students is now the PhD student on this project. So she's got a good breeding background. And um, and her husband actually runs an organic farm. Oh, wow. And so, you know, she's got, you know, that kind of perspective on things. And my guess is she'd be really interested in kind of going after that as part of her thesis. So is your, is your sense this is a, a complex inheritance trait? Or is this going to be something, there are going to be some simple genes that pop out along the way? You know, it's interesting that the, the place where I really came across this was from a, a PhD student at Rothamsted. Mm. And, um, you know, so I wrote to her trying, so they also, they did some mapping studies. But, but they, and they came up with two different QTL, one and this seems hard to believe, one that accounted for 40% of the trait and the other 25%. Wow. Okay. But they wouldn't, they said they couldn't tell us where they were located. <laughs> they, I mean, they wouldn't, not that they couldn't, right? Yeah, well, I think they, they had some funding that, that wasn't allowing them to, yeah. So, um, but interestingly, when they had their, their QTL scans, the um the chromosomes were in order <laughs> so you can kind of guess and one of the things that got me really interested is that one of the the one the, i think it was the qtl with the biggest trait looked like it might have been on 5b and there's just a lot of of different resistance genes and also some some genes that affect a broad spectrum of diseases you know nematodes and fungi on 5B, as well as a, a locus that um, controls the size of phosphorus solubilizing pseudomonads. Wow. So I'm kind of wondering if, if there's a gene in that area that, that are favoring the, the pseudomonads and that's what's going on. But Do, do you have a sense, I, you, you mentioned a, a number of other diseases, et cetera, you're looking at. Do you have a, a good idea yet of where you think the best um, control is going to be? Is it going to be in Ceph? Is it going to be in crown rod? Is it going to be nematodes? Is it, or do you, you, you think just, it's too early to say? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's too early to say. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to start out with something very simple and very artificial, um, just because it'll be a good way for, for Haley, the new student, to, to become familiar with it. We're just going to do some pairings of these root washes against different pathogens on petri plates, yeah. and that that'll just be kind of a starting point, and then develop some greenhouse studies. Um, you can do things like add the root washes into the soil, or you can do some things where you've got you've got split roots, and you apply the root washes from say Bobtail versus Art Deco or Stevens. Yeah in this part of it, not in this part, and seeing if you're getting a signal that actually transfers over. So there's different ways in which we can go about doing that. You, you know, Chris, this is a little humbling when you think about it, because we, we thought we were pretty smart back in the day and understood uh, resistance between a plant, plant and a pathogen, right? Mm -hmm. um, and now the complexity of biology comes back and says, no, we really didn't understand that link at all, did we? No, the older I get, the more I, I become impressed with how much I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a fascinating area, and I, I'm thrilled what you see what you guys are doing in this. I mean, I think it's going to open so many different doors, 
and different approaches to, like you're saying, not only diseases, but stress tolerances um, that, that I think are going to be very helpful for a, a lot of different crops, a lot of different breeders. And uh, I'm, I just think this is a really neat area of research you guys have opened up. Yeah, and I think I just think we've got the right the right team here right now to go after it. So, yeah. Look, well, really. Uh, sorry, Jim. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I was just going to say we we really appreciate that information, Chris, and I know that's really great information for our growers, and and really important research. Um, so I wish you success as you continue to to work on that in the future. Yeah, uh, and I also also should caution that you know as Jim very well knows that you know this is a plant breeding approach and plant breeding takes time, but um, you know that you you have to start somewhere. Yeah. No, that's great, and it's nice to see the the, the investments and where they lead, and uh, obviously a lot of opportunities in the future. There's going to be a lot more research coming along, and, and I'm sure that retirement to uh, to full time will will be good for you, Chris. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I love everything I do. It's just gotten to the point where I can't do everything everybody wants me to do, and yeah. Understood. Well, we do appreciate it very much. All right. We are coming up just on our 30-minute mark. Uh, Chris, thank you again for your time today and joining us for From the Field. Uh, just a reminder to our viewers and listeners, we will post this episode uh, on our social media as well as our YouTube channel. Uh, so you, you can refer that to friends, neighbors, uh, fellow growers. And uh, we will be in touch with more information on our next From the Field. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Yeah, and thanks to the Idaho Wheat Commission for funding and for uh, Jim for producing a lot of germplasm that really kind of got this started. So it's been fun. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>